please welcome, here to welcome someone else, Jimmy Church. This is Jimmy Church, and I would like you all to welcome Stephen Mason of Jars of Clay singing our introduction song. to Light, hosted by Alan and M. Middleton. We aim to explore what takes place at the corner of theology and geekology. Episode 31, The Surprisingly Good Parts of Evangelical Pop Culture. Welcome to episode 31 of Darkness to Light. This is our show where we take a look at pop culture, in terms of where those stories intersect with concepts in religion, faith, theology, and spirituality. And in this episode, we'll be talking about pop culture from the evangelical subculture, which you were a part of since the mid-80s when you were in college, and which I was part of growing up. (laughs) Because when one says that they grow up in the church, there are certain overtly religious things that that implies. But in America... They're cultural things. Yeah, there's a lot of cultural assumptions that you can have built into that when you say that you grew up Christian. And some of that is... Not great. And some stuff actually kind of holds up. (laughs) So first, we, of course, have to define our terms. And for a lot of this, I give a shout out to the book Gray Sabbath, which was about the Jesus movement of starting in the late 60s and 70s and Some of the things that we'll talk about will intersect with where that group grew uh, grew from. So what we mean by evangelical and and some of the terminology, we need to think back about 100 years ago, and this is sort of hard to believe, but evangelicalism was actually thought of as sort of a modern middle way in theology between theological liberalism which sort of dominated your mainstream denominations and seminaries, and was opposed to fundamentalism on the other side. This was designed to sort of be a a middle path between those two. So evangelicalism valued scholarship and education, which fundamentalism did not, but it valued an individual relationship with God through Christ, which liberalism did not always value. So again, very broad generalizations, but at the time, it was a distinct way of doing Christianity different from both liberalism and fundamentalism. And one of the things that mystifies me to no end has been the melding of fundamentalism and evangelicalism over the last few decades. But that's a story for another day. I have so many opinions on this. 
So if we want to say modern evangelicalism has existed for a little over 100 years, maybe, and this is the stream of Christianity that includes sort of revival meeting culture, Billy Graham, that side of the church. It's from this group that things that we're going to be talking about, Christian quote-unquote products, Christian music, Christian radio, Christian bookstores, those sorts of things, had their origins. And we actually have to start out on the West Coast, like I said, sort of the late 60s surf culture, the hippie movement. And there was a spiritual revival among these groups, which, which would be called the Jesus Movement. And that's where the phrase Jesus Freaks comes from. I know. You thought DC Talk coined that phrase. Yeah, I know. No, it goes, it goes <laughs> like with so many things. Decades back, earlier. It goes back to the hippies. <laughs> that is true. So this is the era of, I don't know if you've seen either of these, Godspell and Jesus Christ Superstar. I missed them both, which is shocking, because I was a drama nerd at a Christian <laughs> high school. Well, okay. That's maybe why. That, that, that would actually why. probably be why. But it was it's sort of from this hippie revival, this, this West Coast surfer revival, is where those sorts of things came into you know, traditional, normal pop culture. Right. And with the Jesus movement, they came up with their own sort of distinct sound, which is quite aptly called Jesus music. And this was an early attempt to try and contemporize religious music and not just be like, well, that's church music. That's hymns. That's... If it's not an organ, it's not church music. Exactly. This was the first group to sort of counter that assumption. That's where you get John Fisher... Larry Norman, Randy Stonehill, and would eventually lead to bands like Love Song and Petra and Res Band. Some quote-unquote big names. Big big names in a small pond. So it sort of started on the folk side, which was sort of the music of that that era, then moved into pop rock and harder rock, and that's sort of changed. uh, As music has changed, Christian music has changed, usually three and a half years behind, on average. (laughs) Now... The churches of that time, whether they were sort of the mainstream churches or or hardcore fundamentalist churches, neither of those groups were really welcoming of the hippie Christians. Yeah, that was very much considered kind of an oxymoron of a straight-laced, traditional, Mm -hmm. liturgical spirituality, which was the majority of, of mm-hmm. Christian churches at the time. I know it seems weird from my perspective, yeah. but the idea of a church without a guitar, yeah. that's wild. <laughs> that is wild to me. But there was, there was I mean, kind of a, yeah. a feeling of like a war on traditional Christian mm-hmm. trappings mm-hmm. with these long-haired, sandal-wearing blondes wandering in with guitars. No, and being you don't like, even own a suit? Yeah. You probably don't own a polo. You don't. You own, probably you, you aren't wearing wear, a shirt. You don't wear long pants at all. Like none of those things. Yeah. So uh, you know, we ended up with new churches and new denominations, notably probably Calvary Chapel and the Vineyard, among the most influential of these sort of Southern California-based uh, Christian organizations. And it was also made clear that if these people weren't going to get their needs for Christian music and other religious products from the mainstream church, they would have to start their own as good hippies. Sometimes this happened in communes, co-ops, 
big communities, but also in big festival-type events and gatherings. So you've got these couple of things happening. The development of Christian concerts of a certain scale, which attracted Christian business people who might think there might be a Christian music industry and Christian record sales and Christian radio as possibilities. And one of the musicians from that era, John Fisher, writes a lot about this. And in in his mind, by about 1975, the innocence was gone and it had become an industry. Yeah. There certainly was well on that path mm-hmm. to becoming an industry. It was sort of the point of no return. And about 10 or 15 years later, around 1985 to 1990, the industry would peak. Mm-hmm. In, the, in, life, in, the Lifeway, the Daystar, <laughs> you know, all of the, the industry. And we mentioned it already. The vineyard churches would have their own vineyard music brand and their own recording company Mm -hmm. how many touching the father's heart albums do (laughs) we personally own scores i know we have one that starts with a seven we might have one that starts with a nine (laughs) i know they recorded more than a hundred yeah exactly you know when you have industry that usually involves stereotypically guys in suits in this case often literally guys in suits making those decisions and and that separation between the artist and the industry and all all of those sorts of things started to started to happen but like you said this peaked mid 80s into into the 2000s yeah sort of the christian bookstores christian music christian product yeah so that's mostly the era we're going to be focusing on 85 to 2010 sort of that sort of that window when it was at its uh, at its peak just sort of a thing that's interesting about this is, you know, I'm not really sure which is a more of a chicken and an egg situation, right. but before 85, most of these artists and these records were not being released on Christian labels right. because there weren't Christian labels. It was just indie music about Jesus. And now, past 2010, as we're living in the era yes. of the Kickstarter and the Indiegogo and the independent we're moving really back, brand, sort of back towards that. We're, yeah, we're getting to a point where it's it's more possible for individuals or groups of individuals to have the resources to make professional sounding music, and we're sort of getting out of this weird window of opportunity, but also window <laughs> of a lot of regulations yeah. and strictures right. that was the Christian recording industry. It started with hippie and folk, and then it went into this suit and tie. bizarre suit and tie era that you and I were both pretty heavily involved in. And now we're back to the goths and, and indies and folks and 40 foot of chain. 40 foot chain. <laughs> Larry Norman would be so proud. I think so. I think so. Gene Eugene. Gene yes, Eugene would be real would be proud. proud. Yes. So, our goal with this episode is to talk about some of the really good things that you know, from, from, from that era, from that, that culture, to sort of celebrate. Although, sort of by definition, by comparison, by what we don't mention, there's a little bit of, what do you kids, shade throwing? Yeah. So, I mean, it's hard to avoid that, to avoid comparisons, try to avoid the negative. And focus on the positive, though some mentions 
will be made at least uh, referencing. We'll try not to call out individual things. And there are other podcasts that take a much more specific look at, I would say, more average, typical aspects of the Christian pop culture, things like good Christian fun. Right. I thought it was really mm-hmm. important to give them a shout out yes. because they definitely helped inspire yes. this concept. But where their show is very much a focus on, let's take all of the sort of things that we were exposed to and experienced and find what bits and pieces of good are in there. We wanted to take a moment and really talk about stuff that is great. Not just mm-hmm. great for Christian music or great for Christian books, but was actually pretty solid. Stands on its own. That's pretty good art. I'm also focusing on the phrase surprisingly good in the sense also of surprising. Like, how did that content get on this label and get released in this? It's a celebration of both the good and the strangely experimental and the different and, and, and you know, those sorts of things. And the kind of vaguely unnoticed. <laughs> exactly. Hey, the adults weren't always looking. That helps. Sometimes the cat was away, and the mice, they did play. <laughs> now, in, in terms of this, we first off have to say the sorts of things we're not counting. And we're not counting some of my all-time favorite bands. The Call. The they, Alarm. <laughs> the Call had an album called Reconciled, where every song had religious content on it. It, it, was, was, a, it was literally like a step-by-step process of self-examination and like the nature of doubt but it was released on a mainstream record label but that that didn't come out of this culture that we're talking about so some of those bands are you two you know those sorts of sort of spiritual types of things we're not talking about things that have sort of come out of elsewhere and so that that does limit it now there's some closer calls we'll talk about especially on the music side P.O.D. or Flyleaf. So they're sort of oh, half a, and half or sort of a thing. Yeah, that's the thing about the 2000s that was so interesting is that, again, because Christian music tends to lag a couple of years behind, right at the tail end of like the emo scene, 2007-ish, right there at sort of the tail end of popular emo, P.O.D., and Flyleaf, and even, th- you know, things like Demon Hunter, which are metal, mm-hmm. but bands like that, that were telling some kind of strangely dark, genuinely emotional and open content was finally working its way Look, we wink the Christian wink, I mean, machine. We, you know, we wink winked. We knew Evanescence. Yeah. They were us, right? They were, they were, a, they were a Christian band made good, or... Sixpence none the richer, See, right? We knew we we knew these bands back in the days when they were struggling playing Christian Fest and small church and this that and then something breaks you know, breaks for them, and in some cases like Sixpence, they get sort of run out of the industry because they become too popular and their biggest hit song involved kissing. We'll get to that. Okay, I'm just saying, I'm trying not, we're trying to be positive. We're trying to be positive. positive. We're trying to be (laughs) positive. But a thing about that is, by the time that the industry was kind of starting to catch up, was starting to loosen up a little bit, and was starting to let people like P.O.D. make some songs that are maybe a little contentious, 
Maybe mm-hmm. Super Chick is doing a little bit of edgy stuff. Gonna acknowledge like teen suicide mm-hmm. for you know a minute. Something something really dark for the industry. Right. And by that point, the pop culture was kind of primed to be like, well, this is just mainstream music. Right. It's like it's it is sort of ironic that by the time Christian music is doing something edgy, it has become mainstream. And can kind of get some mainstream crossover acceptance right, right out of the gate. That's true. So this results in things like Youth of the Nation by P.O.D. being played on our local hits of the 90s and 2000s throwback rock station. Or my roommate not knowing that Flyleaf was a Christian band. She just thought it was really good. And when I told her, it's a Christian band, she said, are you sure? And I said, well, I bought the album from my church. I'm pretty, so I'm pretty sure. sure. I'm pretty sure. <laughs> also wanted to give a shout out to a couple of entities that are probably too modern. Yeah, but they're maybe to not. To they not are doing fit the Lord's criteria, work. But but John Christ, comedian, and the Babylon Bee again, sort of they 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 don't fit our timeline. But we've and, given them shout-outs before. And they poke enough fun about the evangelical oh, subculture lands. that I don't think they are particularly welcome in the evangelical subculture so, anymore. Yes. They, so. they, are, they are definitely post even, in the post-evangelical Evangelical, wilderness yes. with the two of us. <laughs> I did not know that Babylon Bee had a podcast. Been do, doing it just for a couple of months now. And here's some connections for you. Are you ready? Yeah. Yeah. Do it. First... One of the two co-hosts of that, who's one of the top two or three writers at the Babylon Bee, is Ethan Nicole, who many people may know as the big brother half of the creative team behind Axe Cop. The, the greatest webcomic ever Independent webcomic that actually turned into an animated series on like Adult Swim for a couple of years. He was half of that, and late in its life when it was a Netflix show in revival he wrote on veggie tales so the man has cred the connections <laughs> the connections are amazing and we also wanted to give a shout out actually to the current secular metal scene for being one of the most open and welcoming and compassionate places in music and making space for a lot of weird indie Christian bands who may not really be welcome in the traditional church, youth mm-hmm. group, summer camp circuit. Right. That a lot of Christian bands sort of start their their professional career in. But it seems like in the metal scene, if you can play, and I guess if you're kind of nice, you're sort of welcome on the tour, it seems like. You know, if a if you know one or two day metal fest comes to your area, you know, with a couple of stages and maybe thirty or forty bands, Demon Hunter, The Devil Wears Prada, Grave Robber, Under Oath, Red they're, Skillet, they're they're going to be in that mix somewhere. Probably, you're going to find some of those Christian bands plugging away, because as niche and small as the Christian music scene might be, when you add hard rock. And then heavy metal, you get smaller and smaller and smaller. You, you, you can't survive. So you have to go sort of the mainstream route and play legitimate, normal venues. Yeah. And, play, and, and again, play our it, local uh, music bar here right. in town, which is where the way into audio feed this past summer, 
five or six of our favorite bands were playing, and the third person on the docket was just a local three-man metal group. Yeah, not just, Christian, not, 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 just, Christian, just, not just, going to audio feed, just, hey, do you we guys had have an open 20 slot? minutes to fill between bands, and so, okay. You can play 31 minutes of music <laughs> and, and I was, I was, get free drinks. One of the things I was, I was joking about is, you know, the, the metal scene, they're comfortable with biblical imagery. Yeah, they're they're comfortable with yeah, you're not demons gonna... and angels and hell. You're not gonna you know you're not you're not gonna freak them out. Oh, they're talking Bible things. Uh, much of heavy metal talks weirdly about Bible things. Maybe you might say from the opposite perspective. Perhaps. Well, but here's the thing: if a metal band gets up and is like, "I'm gonna sing about my demons," all everybody else is like, "Yeah, I'm talking literally." Okay, you you're cool. You. <laughs> exactly. They're not gonna care. It, uh, like I said, it does seem to be a an, an open and welcoming community. Like I said, I'm assuming if you can play, and if you're nice. Yeah. <laughs> so so shout out to that thing that that's sort of happening uh, happening nowadays. But like we said, we wanted to jump back in time, and also not talk just about music. Right. As well. Because not only was there a huge music industry, there was a huge television industry and a still thriving publishing industry in inspirational by which we mean christian Mm -hmm. fic and i'm going to mention one of my favorite books very obscure very unknown and i read a lot of christian fiction i even to this day still keep up with with some christian fiction and one of my favorite individual books was something called leaper by jeffrey wood this was in that era where non-Marvel and DC hero properties were being developed. Heroes, the TV show, sort of probably being the, the, the standout of that, of that crowd. But it was like the concept of heroes and superpowers was sort of punching through the mainstream, but not with these recognizable properties. And there was a little sub-niche of superhero fiction, superhero prose fiction. This is the only one I ever found from a Christian perspective. But it was Leaper, and our hero got the power to leap tall buildings. In a single bound? In a single bound. Amazing. I don't remember if he had any other early Superman-type powers, but the book to me stands out for that reason. But sort of two interesting choices. The lead character was of a Hispanic background. That was a little bit different. And part of the way that that Hispanic background played out was that when he needed counsel and advice about what to do with these strange new powers and what responsibilities they might entail, he went to his Catholic priest. Those two authorial choices to make your lead character Hispanic and Catholic, I remember that. Yeah. Because it, it stood that, out. That, that, those two aspects really stand out a decade plus later. So that's the first one for me. Leaper by Jeffrey Wood. So since you did a book, I'm also going to do a book. Or in this case, a series. Almost an entire series, (laughs) if I know what you're talking about. (laughs) We'll get to that. So Mindy Starnes Clark is a really prolific writer. She and the other... Mary Higgins Clark, yeah. Like, in that 
group. I don't remember which one she's related to. Two of them are related. Whatever. This author is not part of that duo. But from shelving them at the library, at the public library, you got a lot of these (laughs) Clark novels. And her novels often get kind of lost in the background. Right. And among her prolific Amish romance (laughs) fiction writing, which... That That's is a also, subgenre we just we're not even going to get into now. Also, a discussion for a different day. There was a great series that she wrote called Million Dollar Mysteries, and you and I are both pretty big fans of cozy mystery yeah. novels, mm-hmm. and this one definitely fits into that genre. I would say more so than any traditional Christian publishing yeah. subgenre, because mm-hmm. most of them are romance. And while this series does have a romance. It is natural enough and understated enough and realistic enough that it doesn't get in the way of the plot. They're definitely plot first. For the the most part. For the most part. They were mystery first, plot first. The books of this series that I would recommend are A Penny for Your Thoughts, Don't Take Any Wooden Nickels, A Dime a Dozen, and A Quarter for a Kiss. You should stop before the buck stops here because that one is a wedding novel. And if you have read any Christian fiction, you know that wedding novel is a specific genre. That in between four and five, they stop being mystery novels entirely. Nothing. It's nothingness. 50% of the book is dedicated to wedding planning, wedding jitters, like wedding decisions, wedding dresses, wedding cakes. And it is so frustrating for me personally because... One of the things that I loved about this series was that it was about a competent, professional Strong, woman. powerful woman. And who, in all the positive was, ways. Who was in love, not with a farmer or a physical laborer or, God forbid, a carpenter. Christian fiction, you need, you need, you need to examine your stuff. But was romantically interested in a fellow competent corporate professional man she was an investigator she worked for a philanthropist philanthropist and she investigated charities to see how if they were on the up and up how they were handling their finances if they were worthy of contributions which by the way is such a great premise and it's such an important job yes honestly this is the series that taught me about Charity Navigator, Mm -hmm. because a not insignificant portion of each of these books during the setup chapters is talking about her process. So it will either have her going undercover, Mm -hmm. attempting to seek services, attempting to seek a job, sending friends and family members into secret shoppers, quote unquote, unquote, reporting back on things Mm -hmm. and investigating them through Charity Navigators, talking about the process of searching for their filing. If they're a non, you know, if they're a a, a charitable organization, Mm -hmm. they need to be filed. Exactly. They need to have these certain forms. If they aren't a member of a watchdog group, that's really concerning unless they're under a certain size. If there are only 20 Mm -hmm. employees, they don't have to involve themselves. If there's 90 employees, they still don't have to be in a watchdog group. But it starts to look suspicious at that point. What a great premise. What a great idea. The procedural stuff was great. The mysteries were great. They didn't pull very many punches. No, no. There is some legitimate danger. There's one scene in particular that I remember that involved uh, human traffickers. Mm -hmm. 
that there was a, a business which was a front for human trafficking. And so when she went in to investigate for the, the first misappropriation of funds, sort of more normal, quote, like white collar crime, she found this horrible, horrible underbelly that was you know, human trafficking and gun smuggling and all this. And she ended up in really real danger, almost murdered by these people, being tied to uh, a shipping anchor and dropped off of the pier. And it was really tense. It was extremely violent. It was frightening. It was scary. And in order to escape, she had to cut her hair, which in a different series would not have the same sort of thematic Mm -hmm. things that that says in a Christian fiction yeah. book that sort of losing those trappings of femininity was a very empowering decision. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't, it, it, was, it was. There was some really good, like, gender politics in a book that is, again, published by a Christian publishing house. Up until she starts getting married, and all of a so sudden the, the complementarianism comes out of nowhere, I'm and she has cer- to be she has to be sitting there thinking about does this dress make me look fat? I'm so worried about I'm, my I'm hair. Not, I'm like, not blaming her. Cared. I'm blaming the publisher. I'm saying that in my mind, she got away with it for four books. If she wanted a career, she had to reel it in a little bit. That I'm blaming. Now, if that's the case, she bent, but still. I, I, I understand I, it. I know. It's I, angering, though. Oh, it was so close. It was so close to being a genuinely groundbreaking... It was, yes. ...like, Christian fiction series where we could have had a Christian power couple out there wrecking it in the business world, just absolutely killing it in white-collar America, making sure that resources and finances were getting to charitable organizations that were going to help people, doing it, doing all of this stuff while being very open about being Christian, speaking about their faith to other people, occasionally having people convert. Yep. But there wasn't the same pressure of like, and here's a bad atheist, and mm-hmm. by the end of the book, they're going to become a Christian. There was actually some decent nuance of, well, why are you an atheist? Oh, well, I'm a person of faith. That doesn't make sense to me. That doesn't make sense to me. You know what? Maybe we'll have a moment. Can you maybe pray for Mm -hmm. me? I'm kind of trying to figure things out. End of book. There were so many, quote unquote, mandatory steps that Mindy Starnes Clark was able to avoid. in, In the formula, yeah. Work within that stricture, but work around it in a lot of ways. And that last, that last one just or if you, or, kills me. Or if you just say, what's wrong with a powerful, successful, single Christian woman? That's, that's the other argument, too. And neither but, of those were okay, and know, yeah. the, the publishing end. industry came for it. So what I'm saying is this is my favorite quartet. It's a five-book series. It's a five-book no, series. No, wait. But it's great four books. It's a four book series <laughs> that had a fifth book epilogue. As we all know, fifth books are very rarely <laughs> worth the trouble. Stop at four. Stop at Stop four. At four. Yeah. Know that they get married and that they had a wonderful egalitarian relationship. Think of it absolutely that way. <laughs> wrecking it in the financial sphere, being completely 100% awesome. You have fan fictioned a new book five. I like it. I, I like it. That's my head cannon. <laughs> well, I'm going to jump into one that was not on my list. Okay, so this we have some su- secret picks. But in this one, you might not even be familiar with. This is a thing called the Wittenberg Door, a magazine. Oh. 
ran in the early 70s into the mid-2000s, and it was the first Christian satire magazine oh, that I, I knew see, of. I see why Babylon so there's B a little had Babylon to get a shout-out. little shout-out there. But they took aim at televangelists. That was sort of the, the big thing in the 70s, 80s, not on, at fundamentalism, you know, and it's, its rise, just Christian culture, really bad doctrine, church hypocrisy, sort of all of that. But articles and cartoons, really good cartoons. Ah, awesome. You know, that one is one that's lost to the sands of time, and it's a, to some extent replaced by the Babylon Bee. But I wanted to give The Door, as it was sometimes called, The Wittenberg Door, a shout-out here. Well, since you mentioned a publication that was not on the list, I oh. actually just remembered something. And this is definitely one that it's a, with a grain of salt, right. but a very important fan publication mm. that did not come out in okay. the era mm. of the big push of right. evangelical subculture, but was made by and for people like me who mm. grew up in that subculture. I want to talk about Anime Angels magazine. That was really good. That was really solid. This is pre-AO3. This is pre-fanfiction.net. This was circulated uh, uh, as, a, as a published zine in ex- maybe 2003, probably, yeah. they started publishing. And I think they did, yeah, maybe, maybe 12 issues. I think they did it twice a year. But this is before Kickstarter, before access to those types of resources. They, these, where... were, these were runoff in small batches yeah. at Kinko's. Yes, and again, the, the quality of the story varies, um, but the reason I'm giving it mm-hmm. a shout out here, even though the actual quality is, you know, not really super up to snuff, is that it was a buy and for teens yes. magazine. Their publishing requirements was that you had to be between the ages of 10 and 18. So basically it was Christian deviant art, mm-hmm. and it was a chance for teens and kids who had grown up in the Christian subculture to find a means of Mm self-expression where they could try things artistically and be involved in the anime and manga subculture, which unfortunately is fraught with a lot of grossness. Very heavy adult themes, again, especially in the 80s and 90s. For better and worse, lots of adult material, lots of adult themes, lots of sex, lots of violence. And this was sort of an alternative where Christian teens could make their own stuff for themselves. And just like conceptually, it was so cool. I was so sad when it stopped circulating because it inspired me to actually start my own comic mm-hmm. that I began drafting specifically to mm. submit to Anime Angels. And one day I kind of want to go back and revisit it. But for me, reading that magazine really helped inspire me into my own in artistic the, in the creative and artistic ways, direction. Which helped me do a lot of personal examination and personal mm-hmm. growth That's great. about my own concepts of self and of mm-hmm. faith and about mm-hmm. how those relate. When I was like 15 and 16 and really confused. <laughs> yeah. So it awesome. was a pretty it was a pretty good magazine. 
And it came and it was to important me at, at just the right at time. Just the right time. It was very important to me personally. And I thought that that was worth a shout out. There were other Christian comics. Serenity was one. Yeah, it was okay. professionally published, and in my opinion, not as good. Yeah, I'll You'll take, take I'll take angels. the yep. I'll take the rough mm-hmm. fan work mm-hmm. over the mm-hmm. sort of polished up professional work any day. Let me uh, jump back to music here and mention a specific album, but then that'll sort of give me an excuse to talk a little bit more more broadly. And I'm going to give a shout out to musician Anthony Krikorian who recorded under the name Tonio K. And his album, Romeo Unchained. Man, that's a good album. Which was his first of two albums that he did for a a Christian label. And the entire album, with one exception that they made him put in a religious song, and even that was... In a weirdly humorous snake handling song. God, snake handling. But he had to put that on there to make it religious sounding. The whole rest of the album is about broken relationships in a broken world. Which is still an incredibly spiritual concept, but again, absolutely. It's too much. And unbelievable stuff. And I mean, probably, I mean, the best song by far is the. The Closer, uh, You Will Go Free. Just a, a wonderful song. But all of the songs are about that that heartache and the searching and the questioning and the doubt about place in the world. And again, within relationships, it talks about abusive relationships and a wide variety of unhealthy yeah. situations. I mean, and I mean, the line opens up with, it's a jungle out there. It used to be a garden. I mean, there's biblical religious imagery all throughout it. And yet, it's a shock that it got released without any without the traditional overt stuff, and with all of this dark, heavy relationship stuff. This I, was the. I am. I re-listened to the album a couple years ago. I thought, how did this ever get through the cracks? And I think part of that is we talked about the sort of the music side of this Christian scene being a Southern California, uh, California thing. And I think that had a real significance in terms, because you that's the, just the cultural aspects of being out, being out there, especially compared to about maybe 20 years ago now, late nineties, the Christian music scene, I mean, the record labels up and moved to Nashville. Yeah. And there were a few good things that, that, that that brought, but I think on balance, it was a, probably a net negative. It certainly squeezed out the more experimental, outside-of-the-box people. It, it squeezed out the California types as opposed to the welcomed-in-the-Nashville types, just moving to the Bible Belt. Yeah. Being, a, being exp- physically on the fringes. Yeah. yeah. It had a lot of benefits and trying to trying to produce christian music where the industry is regular mainstream entertainment where all the real record companies were and the real videographers and the as opposed to as a fine professionals that were outside of your specific genre yeah the the mixing of of so many different types of people and different types of artists with different types of views within or or outside of christianity and then when you move to Nashville, Tennessee, Bible Belt, 
every, everything changes. Yeah. And I want to take a moment here and and talk for a very, very brief minute in defense of country music. Mm-hmm. Because I don't want to lay any blame at anyone's mm-hmm. feet specifically. But this move coincided mm-hmm. with a lot of other factors that resulted in the watering down of basically everything. Before the CCMC moved to Nashville, Nashville had both a thriving gospel and folk scene. And when CCM, with this somewhat sanitized, smoothed-off pop version of surf rock, moved into Nashville, that smooth, sanitized pop sound merged with gospel and merged with folk in order to create modern country. And it's one of those situations where post-merger, all of those things suffered. suffered. Yeah. Uh, the Christian music that came out of Nashville, in our opinion, was less strong than the material that had been released before. Gospel music released since that time, also weaker. Yeah. Not the strong Southern Black Baptist mm-hmm. like tradition of spirituals that we had had up until that point. It was sanitized post this change. Really angry, aggressive, or even just politically insightful country music basically ended. Yeah, I I think on the on the pop and rock scene, I think the music got slicker. Yeah, it got more produced. I don't know if it got better produced. Yeah, (laughs) it got more produced Mm -hmm. and overproduced. That's how I feel. And I think some of that. I mean, to me, Sixpence None the Richer is a classic case of a. A group that sort of got Nashville squeezed them. And, uh, and it's unfortunate because this merge, this move, this, this combination mm-hmm. of factors, this creation of a, a different sort of musical culture in this area just made it harder for musicians generally. We talked to Tyler from Insomniac Folklore a couple years ago at, at AudiFeed was on one of our episodes where they moved from Portland to Nashville because that's where that's where the music scene was. And, you know, he was doing work as, as a roadie with bands and venues and, and, and then they were playing their music around. But it, it was a... It, it, it was also a non-starter. They were misfits. It was a misfit. It was a non-starter and they ended up heading back to the, heading back to the West Coast because they're, they're a little too weird. They were a little, they're a little too out there. And this is why I'm so glad that we now live in the era where indie is sort of religionizing yeah. itself mm-hmm. because it's, it's breaking down that cultural monopoly that Nashville has held on country music, on gospel music, on folk music, on Christian music mm-hmm. up until now. I do not begrudge people who enjoy the music that yeah, came absolutely. out at that time. Do not want to judge people for enjoying post-2000 country music, but it is definitively different, and it is definitively not for me. We're just glad that Weird is back. We're always (laughs) glad when there can be more Weird. And so we've been talking some now about like this monoculture and this recording monoculture and, and, and things of that nature. Fortunately, there are Christian bands and Christian culture that exists outside of America. <laughs> this might be shocking to any American Protestants listening to this, and this was certainly shocking to me. To me. And most of my school fellows, 
when we had a project about a band. And of course, it was a Christian school. So you could only bring a Christian band. People brought Switchfoot. People brought P.O.D. People brought Flyleaf. One very edgy person brought Demon Hunter and was sort of nice. judged <laughs> very strongly by certain members of the <laughs> teaching staff. I brought Iona. Which, by the way, and no one had heard of. Nobody knew who this was. Absolutely nobody knew what was going on. Never more proud. Iona by Iona mm-hmm. came out the same time that I did. Yes. <laughs> Mid-91. I arrived on the scene and uh, three months later, your cassette <laughs> of Iona by Iona showed up from Ireland. And that cassette was on all the time in our house. It's one of our favorite bands of all time, and it's a very interesting type of band in that it is a Christian New Age band. Mm -hmm. This would never fly in Nashville, because in the 90s, New Age was the enemy. (laughs) But this was just, it's a Celtic... Irish with traditional and modern, so it's not it's not Irish folk, it's not Cape Breton or Prince Edward Island, it's not that. It's pipes and guitars and keyboards and lots and lots of drums. Just absolutely wonderful. And I did hear about them because of CCM, Contemporary Christian Music, CCM Magazine did a cover story on them. And this was an eye-opener for me. I trace back a lot of my interests in church history. Ancient futurism. Ancient futurism. It's just all of that stuff, to me, goes back to Iona. Because they were talking about the Irish saints. And Columkill. Patrick and Columba and Columkill. And a world of church history that first existed before the Reformation. Yep. Which does not get talked about very often in America. And so some of these people, they were Catholic. (gasps) But it just opened that that entire church history world. And my interest in all of those things, I certainly trace it back to Iona. And their songs. Their album, Book of Kells. The Book of Kells. Oh, my gosh. Which I think, Open Sky is hard to beat. That was the first album that I owned. That was my Iona album, and I probably listened to it five or six times a week for like four years of my life. It was just my constant. It's what I listened to when I went to sleep. It's what I went listened to whenever I was reading. It's what I listened to any time that I was alone. I brought it and a Discman to school (laughs) so that I could listen to Iona in between my classes. Wonderful. I think Book of Kells has to take the cake. Didn't I see a copy of the Book of Kells? You did. You in, went to Trinity. In, in, you went to Trinity, Trinity and you saw in Dublin. The Book I of saw Kells. the Book of Kells. Yes, and I wouldn't have done that. I wouldn't have been interested in that that, that English trip. I mean, all so much of that stuff. We wouldn't have gone to Kevin's Kirk. Wouldn't mm. have been to Law. This then an organization called Monk Rock that I ran into probably fifteen years later at Cornerstone that again sort of had this this modern monastic. Uh, concept, but I but I had a grid to put that into. Mm-hmm. In the world, not of the world. In the world, yes. You, you, you don't have to be a monk to live like one. The, one of the cool things in the evangelical world the last 10 years or so has been a recognition of some of these older practices, whether it's 
spiritual direction Lectio or Divina. labyrinth walks. Uh, you know, our church for a couple of years had a, I mean, a Protestant version, but had a Stations of the Cross during Holy Week. And, and I think my interest and in my noticing of all of those things, my care about all of those things, it trace back, uh, traces back to here. Honestly, there's pretty uh, much a straight one-to-one-to-one line of Iona to Monk Rock to this podcast. Yeah, it's, it's, that, that's not crazy. That is not crazy. Well, if you're sticking with Celtic things and Irish things, I will mention the author... Stephen R. Lawhead, who is best known for his Pendragon cycle, but probably has a couple of dozen uh, novels to his name. And I've read most of them. And a lot of these are, again, the, the King Arthur series. He did a couple books about Robin Hood. So he's tapped into some of these older legends. Uh, current one I'm actually reading now is called Byzantium. It sort of takes place in the mix of monastic movement in England, the Vikings coming in, the Mohammedans on the move, and sort of the culture clash of all of those beings and entities. So that one is is uh, quite enjoyable. You know what I should do? I should read that book while listening to Byzantium by Jeff Johnson. Yes, there you go. There you go. Lawhead, you know, his books are in regular fantasy sections as well, but he also had many that were published by Christian Publishing when it was at, at its height. Yeah. He's been, been picked up by uh, other publishers now. He's, uh, I think one of his more current series is a dimension hopping thing taking place in London relating to ley lines and where Ooh. the ley lines intersect, things happen, and huh. a fairy... The Fae might be involved in that as well. I'm trying to remember exactly, but weird things happening. That's the Bright Empires series. I'm going to have to so go to Goodreads after good, this. So it's a pretty interesting, pretty interesting things there. So Stephen R. Lawhead is, to me, probably the best and most consistent writer of Christian fantasy, Christian historical fiction, those sorts of things. Excellent. Well... My person that I want to talk about does not quite live up to that legacy. But I wanted to take a moment and talk about The Seven Sleepers and the Daystar Voyages series by Gilbert Morris. These were my jam. Do you remember these books? Yes, I do. Uh, Gilbert Morris is an author of probably well over 100 150 novels. According to Amazon, 200 plus. <laughs> and a couple of them were kid series. And they were really good. They were really, really solid. So I the... did not see this one coming, I have to say. But they were my favorite. Yeah. I loved these books. Now, I will admit, I have not reread them. Because you cannot find them anywhere. Yeah. I, let me just say. As a person... Well, when you write 200 books, some of them are going to go out of print. As a person who works in libraries, I do not regret any of the librarians who weeded these series in 2006. On the other hand... But you're bummed that it happened. I am bummed that I do not have the ability to reread them. I actually do. Because he's got to deal Ah, with Amazon now. Okay. You can get them all for a buck ninety-nine. There you go. As ebooks, and I'm probably <laughs> going to shell out the $34 that it is going to cost to buy 
all 26 of these books. Man, oh man. Yeah. So was it, Daystar, what, Daystar wasn't, Voyages had That was a sci-fi. 12. That was sci-fi. So here and were, the other was more fantasy. So here I'm, were the two series. Yeah. One of them was a space opera. Mm-hmm. That's Daystar Voyages. The other one, and again, I'm not going to say he was the first to do it. Definitely not going to say he was the best at this. But he was the first person that I yes. read who wrote science fantasy. Mm. This is no Madeline Langle, but as far as combining religious and spiritual theories with fantasy tropes, with sci-fi concepts, this I dug. Seven Sleepers was a post-apocalyptic series that nice. was leading up in the era of nuclear war. Right. It was written in the late 80s right. when that was a really sure. big concern. And so the premise was that seven children, aged like 10 to 17, yeah. had all been put in these sleeper capsules mm-hmm. by their parents as part of this project to try and make sure that humanity would survive in the case of nuclear fallout. So the bombs start dropping and all of the kids go into cryosleep. 50 years later, after the complete destruction of the world... They awake in this new post-apocalyptic, mutated Mad Max-style universe, and they have to go and, using their Christian spirituality and life lessons and morals, have to go out and fight the Dark Lord, who has taken over in the wake Mm -hmm. of this absolute destruction. And there are some zany concepts. The one that I always remembered, which was both my favorite and also the one that most deeply disturbed me, (laughs) was City of the Cyborgs. Which is a mm. very Doctor Who plot right. where people within a certain city have all been collected into this Borg collective, essentially. And they have these implants that control their whole, well, not even really control their thoughts. It's an interesting, con- just tells them what to think. Mm-hmm. It's like, do this, do this, go here, do this. And there's this whole heist about they're trying to get someone out of there, but in order to get in, they have to fake getting in, and two people actually get Borged, and then the they have to go in and pretend to be Borgs to get out their friends, mm-hmm. and then get the thing, mm-hmm. and then fight the brother eye, and it was pretty solid. Daystar Voyages, I think, was better. I think so. Um, it was more nuanced, and it had less of the overt, mm-hmm. and then we pray, and then the demons go away. Which was a common trope of kids' books of this time. You will note that I did not put the Cooper Kids series on here. (sighs) Yeah. Because the first one was written in 85, and they are super racist. Uh, Okay. Okay. Because I found them. That's who I was looking for at first, because I was like, I want to look at some Frank Mm -hmm. Peretti stuff. Mm -hmm. He wrote a kids' series once. It was pretty good. It was not. Oh, that's a shame. I was eight and remembered it being, this is kind of vaguely racist, and if my sheltered seven-year-old wasp <laughs> self noticed hey this is kind of maybe a little racially insensitive you probably it's... shouldn't have put it that way said that yeah there's a lot of but polynesian it... cannibalism <laughs> but a skim through daystar voyages revealed none of that did not did not reveal okay. that and i will i will say i did i have not read these nope, in a nope, while nope. so i will give a follow-up at some point once i've read <laughs> some more of these but daystar voyages in particular i mean based on the title it's yeah it's Christian Star Trek. Mm-hmm. And as such, it works pretty well. Um, there was a lady captain, which I loved. There you go. I remember that there was a uh, sort of a subplot throughout a couple of the books, which was, of course, well, there's an atheist on the mm-hmm. ship. Oh, God, how can we do this? And, of course, the atheist eventually yep. ends up converting. 
It's okay. one of those types sure. of books. But I also remember it being at least moderately nuanced in that that the atheist character was still a good person. Right. Mm-hmm. Still cared about their crew members, still was involved, just didn't get it and wasn't interested. And of course, eventually things happen and this goes, okay, well, I think I will convert. But I remember it taking a couple of books. It was not the, as we've sort of mentioned before, the contrived, introduce right. an atheist in chapter two, mm-hmm. have them convert by chapter 30, and then in 31, everything's perfect. Mm-hmm. You know, right. Like that right. sort of simplistic Good. didactic theme, which is pretty common. There was a lot of really interesting things. And again, with this one, each book is a standalone. So it's go to this crazy planet where there are only kids. Go to this crazy planet where a nebula is making people hallucinate. Right. Go to this crazy planet where... There are just demons. You said ep- episodes, just literally of Doctor, demons. episodes of Doctor Who and Do- Star Trek. Doctor Who and Star Trek plots yeah. written for 12-year-old Christian kids. And as a 12-year-old Christian kid who did not like Doctor Who and loves <laughs> Star Trek The Next Generation, it I ate these for you. books that up is with awesome. a spoon. That is awesome. My Gilbert Morris story yeah. is back in the late 90s when I was scarfing down. End of millennia, no. <laughs> end of time, Y2K. Uh, he had a end of times trilogy. But they didn't sell enough and only the first two books came out. No! <laughs> they weren't great. They were, they were average. They were C's. Oh. But I still, 20 years later, I want to know what happened. <laughs> it was, what was the end? Publishers, no! Where are the notes, Gilbert Morris? <laughs> Where are the notes? It was... It's a heartbreak. It's a heartbreak. Okay, deep cleansing breath. Deep cleansing breath. <laughs> I need to give a shout out to, we've mentioned this organization before, at least their music festival, Cornerstone. But I don't know that we've talked about Cornerstone Magazine. And this is another thing that to me was really significant in opening up my worldview of what Christianity uh, is, was, and, and, and could be. This was one of the hippie communes from California that had moved out to Chicago. And they were doing work with the homeless. And they had a mix of, see, traditional morality or conservative theology, but with very progressive sociology. And that's a mix that our pastor at our church has actually talked about. But it was in Cornerstone Magazine, the first place I ever heard about apartheid and how terrible that was. AIDS crisis, homelessness, uh, mental health, all of these things being explored and discussed within a biblical, modern, Christian, and psychological uh, context, you know, bringing all, all of that information uh, to bear. And they did two legitimately groundbreaking journalistic pieces. This was a magazine, sort of what Rolling Stone may have been in that time, both in terms of the size, focus on music and culture, but then also this actual journalism. And they were one of the leaders in investigating the satanic panic, this notion of ritual satanic abuse at nursery schools and daycares across the country. They were among the first organizations to actually look and see, is it possible for this to be happening? The second earth shaker uh, for me was they did a expose of someone named Mike Warnke, and he was one of the first Christian comedians. 
He did more of a sort of public speaking type of show, but humorous stories. His sort of main claim to fame was being involved in satanic rituals. (gasps) That that was his... This this, guy! guy, That that was his backstory. And it was this testimony that really propelled him for many books about it. And one of the reporters, you know, got suspicious some of these things dates and timelines and multiple stories that he would tell, again, published in his books, didn't make sense and did the investigation and looked at, I mean, the yearbooks, interviews with fans, again, legitimate months-long investigative journalism and just completely blew up that story. And, and that one ended up in a really great book called Selling Satan, which is the story of the investigation and how he had gotten away with it for so long. Churches and institutions that probably should have known better maybe did, but there was, there there were ticket sales, there was money to be made and promotion. And it was a dramatic testimony, albeit completely manufactured. So huge credit to the, again, this really small Christian magazine that did legitimate groundbreaking journalism. They were not afraid to go after evangelicals and fundamentalists when they needed going after. One of these days we need to do an episode specifically about the satanic panic and also about the really unfortunate trend that Christian fiction has had on Christian theology. Mm Mm-hmm. All right. That was a lot of pretty serious mm-hmm. stuff. So you're going to keep on the serious? Yeah, let's let's get a palate cleanser. <laughs> let's talk about VeggieTales. Yes! So for people of my vintage, VeggieTales was probably the first show that you watched every single episode yeah. of if you went to Christian daycare. Because it was basically the <laughs> only true. thing that was on. Um, maybe Wishbone. Okay. You could right. you could you yeah. could alternate those in every now and then, provided that you pre-screened them to make sure there to wasn't see what, anything. what book they were making sure they weren't going to be exactly. doing anything too too freaky and out there. Now we had a fight about which VeggieTales we were going to talk about. Okay, you thought there were contenders. Oh my Lance. There's some fun stuff. There's a lot of the songs are extremely yeah. memorable. If you are between the ages of 18 and 25, and you grew up in the church. You know these songs. You know the bunny song. I am sorry for getting it stuck in your head again. You know Barbara Manatee. I'm sorry for getting that stuck in your head again. There are the pirates who don't do anything. You yes, definitely there know are. that song, and I'm sorry for getting it stuck in your hey. head too. But if I standing had to, astride s- like a colossus, standing tall above all of the other series and collections and things like that that VeggieTales released, the best one by far, is the direct-to-VHS movie, The Girl Who Would Be Queen. This one manages to be both a clear VeggieTales comedic reinterpretation of a Bible story, and also a not-totally-irreverent retelling of the story of Esther and the persecution of Jews mm-hmm. during that time. Which is shocking because it yeah. involves exile to an island of tickling because we are not going to put racial genocide in a VeggieTales episode. But 
the voice acting, the animation, the the actually pretty almost nuanced writing of the relationship between Esther and the king. That was yeah. actually pretty compelling. Uh, I I just really enjoyed this movie a lot. I think the music is some of the best they ever did. And I mentioned the animation. This is right when the VeggieTales studio switched from their original animation yeah. engine to their second iteration animation engine. So if you ever saw the Larry Boy movies, it's this quality mm-hmm. of animation. For 2003 or whenever it came out, it's top of the line. It's, it's top of the cool, line, yeah. like really really high quality animation i love it it manages to be compelling funny heartwarming and none of those things get completely out of whack right. it's not too serious for a veggie tales movie but it's it's more serious than like what were they the the story of jericho which i mean like that one's that reinterpretation is pretty silly a lot of their other ones are pretty silly which is their point that's what they do but girl who would be queen was like legitimately compelling veggie tales and i i honestly think it was the it was the peak when you speak about animation of great stories from the bible you can take your fancy pants 1990s cgi thousand level cgi I'm going old school. By that I mean I'm going old. Superbook slash Flying House. Now... They were pretty good, actually. I don't know if there is anyone who is listening who fits into the demographic who remembers this. I barely remember it because this would show on reruns (laughs) on TVN. I don't even know why we had access to TVN. Was it just public? cross my heart? It's the only show we ever watched it's on it. Now let me try to clarify this. But that was their thing. Was six a.m. or something insane before Cartoon Network? Yep. Before Disney Channel or Toon Disney or anything else did their Saturday morning cartoons. Superbook, Superbook, and, and or Flying, Flying House. House would be on. Usually two of each. And, and so were... I could I could get up at like six in the morning and watch four episodes of this show and then probably go watch Clean Sweep for like four hours. <laughs> I was a strange child. Okay, but enough. We looked back at this a couple months or a year ago and we figured out that these were actually American productions. Is that right? But in the style of anime. We're talking original Speed Racer. Yes. We're talking original Astro Boy here. They were produced in the 80s, but they had that 70s style. And I'm pretty sure, but there was a whole, if, if you want more about the history of animation, like go yeah. look into this because it's super fascinating. But in the 70s, when anime was really taking off in Japan, there was an offshoot with some of the animators from Japan who went to Korea and were producing anime in Korea in Korean. And they had their own competitive market, but it was, again, it was sort of like bootleg, mm-hmm. that you could get that stuff cheaper because you wouldn't have to import it from Japan. Ah, uh, okay. Some of those Korean animators, not the Japanese animators, came to California. Gotcha. And they are the ones who brought that style. So it's, it, it looks like Speed Racer, but just a little I, to yeah, the left. Exactly, exactly. Because it's, a, it's an American 
creation in the style of those Korean animators who were working in the style of 70s Japanese anime, which again means it's delayed by like 12 years stylistically (laughs) in, in all of those translations. But it's a it's a neat little it's a, show. It's not bad. If I remember, Superbook was Bible stories, and Flying House was more historicals, either church history or traveling back to various other other uh, eras for stories. Was there? There was a talking computer. There was a talking computer. Yes. There um, was an annoying young boy. Yes. There was a. And there was a crazy. There professor. was a crazy professor with with giant Doctor Wily hair. Wasn't bad. It wasn't it bad. It wasn't bad. And again, this this is definitely a for the time, but in this time not being the nineties, being like the seventies. Love to watch them though. So many of those. Speaking of an old time classic, weird relic of the uh, of the mid nineties. I want to talk about Harry. Who done it? Who done it? Who done it? No one knows. I mean. Wh- I believe Christopher Willett now believes we have made this up. I, if anyone has heard of it, Garrett Godfrey, somebody, if you ever remember this, please, please let val- us know. Validate us that this existed, because I have found two online references to VHSs. Which I did not believe. Ex- I actually do not believe those existed. We're talking audio tapes is what we have. What audio we're talking tapes. about are audio tapes. So I, I Harry Whodunit, Kid Detective. I have heard tale... That the Harry Whodunit Kid Detective v- movies. The VHSs, the little 25-minute animated movies. I have heard that they exist. I don't think they exist now. I think they have mm, all been lost okay, to time. Yes, there is yes. no way that these still exist. If you have one, <laughs> you can sell it on eBay for $25. Because I found an eBay listing, which I am pretty sure does not go to anything. So I'm just saying, if you legitimately have one of these, you can sell it for $40, $50, $60, and somebody will buy it. Or you Maybe can give us. it to us. We would be very interested <laughs> if you could give it to us. What I had were the Harry Whodunit Listen Along Mystery Stories. And what they were is they were a big cardboard box that had a cassette in them. And then it had cards. He made eight cards, Eight, ten cards, something like that, and a little booklet. And what it was, was it was a play-along mystery game where you listened to the cassette and it would tell you the story. And at certain points, it would—it was like Clue. Mm-hmm. It would say, now draw this card. Or, did you find this card? Put it next to the card it relates to. And so it was like a little bit of problem solving, a little bit of well, there's some here, context. And, and here was what I saw. Do you see a clue? Yeah, those sorts of those sorts of things. And so you'd be like, "Oh, this just happened. Okay, so I need to find this thing." And then at the bottom of it, it would have a clue written, and it would be like, "Did you notice this? Or what about that?" And then you would write it down on like a piece of paper. It was it was awesome. It was was really good. And I I do feel bad for some of my babysitters because occasionally they would come (laughs) over, and I would do the same cassette. Over Two again. or three times in a night. And they would be sitting there listening to the Harry Whodunit mystery for two and a half hours. I'm very sorry about this. But I was fascinated. I thought it was so cool. We had two of them. Yep. Theoretically, there are two VHSs that exist 
as well. Somewhere. Wow. Or have existed in the past. And those ones were just, as far as I'm aware, animated series. Or sort right. of like a Dora the Explorer. Right. Where we would occasionally cut right. away and be like, write this down. But the cards, the cards made it really feel interactive. Yes, yes. And, oh. and the talent, we have to say. Yes. This was done out of the California Frontline Studios with some of that legitimate top-end Christian talent. Terry Scott Taylor from the band Daniel Amos, who is a legendary uh, CCM band. And all the people that he worked with on legitimate Frontline Records albums. Mm-hmm. They were able were to get doing real voice actors. The music, that was the, the voice actor. Yep. They, that they were essentially radio plays. Yeah. And they would have eight, ten cast members. And when you put it against the other things that I listened to at the time, which were mostly like fairy tale cassettes, I think we've mentioned those before, mm-hmm. that I had like the Grimm's fairy tales on cassette. But that would be like one person doing some voices, or maybe two people. Maybe they had like a man and a woman. Right. But that was it. These were fully produced audio adventures, and I could see them in my brain. And this, I mean, honestly, it's what sort of unlocked that little thing in my brain that right. was like, I'm going to really like fiction podcasts like 23 <laughs> years from now. Exactly. That they were. They, they were, were great. great. They were great. And since we probably have the only two extant cassettes, and because Terry Taylor is a very kind and generous man who loves people recording bootlegs. We are going to attempt to, to digitize, digitize and release. Stay tuned the to this two, feed. Two episodes of Harry Whodunit Kid Detective on our feed, in the podcast feed, and on Tumblr. So keep. Stay tuned. Yeah. Stay tuned. Stay tuned to, to this place. If, if we are able to get them in a any sort of decent audio quality, we would love to share them with you guys because that was that was my childhood in a nutshell. Then the last one I wanted to mention was something we discovered when we moved here to Ohio twenty years ago. Like we discovered it on our third or fourth day here. Oh. Radio U. Yeah. The best Christian rock station. Ever? Yes. And especially in the last five, six, seven years when Christian music, Christian radio has moved much more worshipy and churchy, it just stands out even more. And it's a legitimate Christian rock radio station. They play pop rock, hard rock, metal, screamo, rap and hip hop, electronica, dance music. They'll play a little bit of everything. And that is part of the problem is sometimes you run across a style or a band that doesn't work for you. That's when I flip over to a podcast for four and a half minutes. Yeah. But uh, give them a a huge shout out. The morning team has been together for like 15 plus years. Yeah. And you have a connection. I do. Obadiah of Radio U did actually graduate from my high school. So he came back so every came year back to and, do a chapel. Yeah, he does. He does chapel once or once or twice a year just to be like, today's our celebrity chapel. We know you're all extremely <laughs> bored. It's like March 30th and you're already thinking about summer. So sit down and listen to Obadiah. He'll tell some jokes. Please don't fall asleep. And what I like about the morning show, it's a pretty decent morning show. Yeah. And they are complete nerds. 
So it's video game talk, superhero talk, movie talk, comics. And usually a review of the newest limited edition Oreo. (laughs) And food. Lots of food talk as well. If you're in the Central Ohio Columbus era, 88.7 FM, with repeaters across the state and in a couple of cities too. But it's also available online and as an app, Radio U, the letter U, Radio U. Highly recommended if you like modern music with a Christian spin to it and a pretty decent morning show. Yeah. I mean, you know. <laughs> Very solidly and a solidly acceptable, pretty good morning show. And I, I will say, I especially want to shout out to this. They are a community-supported local yes, radio no station. no commercials. No commercials. They are entirely commercial-free. They are supported by pledge from patrons. Mm-hmm. And I just, any time I can support local radio, local television, I'm a PBS kid. Pledge drives <laughs> are my bread and exactly. butter. Exactly. That's, Thank you. So want to give them a big shout out for not only playing really good Christian music when not all stations do that, mm-hmm. but providing it free of commercial mm-hmm. and supported by their local community, good. which is just so good. awesome. And to close, wrap us up. I want to talk about, well, I would say probably the greatest, the most prolific, et cetera, et cetera, Christian band. Except that I do have to take a sidebar and say, aside from Switchfoot, yeah. Yeah. who did release the greatest Christian album of all time, Beautiful Let Down, Beautiful Let yeah. Down which was horrifically reviewed in Cornerstone <laughs> Magazine. Didn't they call it perfectly named? Aptly named Beautiful Let Down as, as Switchfoot leaves its original record company and moves to a secular record company. It's completely I terrible. I was let down. And then five years later, they released a retraction and said, never mind. I'm sorry. This is our album of the decade. Please. We're sorry. We're so, so, so sorry. Not only was it the number one Christian album of the decade, obviously, according to like the Billboard Top mm-hmm. 100. It was also number 16 on the general right. collective Billboard Top 200 landed in at number 16, and the 194th of 200 <laughs> for the decade. Yeah. And considering right. it came out in 2004, and some of its popularity had sort of started to drop off a little bit, mm-hmm. it's still popular, but you know, the, the radio play had started dropping off by the time the, the list was compiled. That's pretty impressive. Not only did it go double platinum, like, it is generally considered the best-reviewed, best-produced, flat-out the best. It has, like, five of the greatest Christian rock songs of all time on it. Like, obviously. But other than Switchfoot. But other than Switchfoot, we really have to talk about Jars of Clay. Rain, rain on your face. Hasn't uh, stopped raining for days. That would be the one. Flood. Off of Jars of Clay by Jars of Clay. Which is just such an outstanding i suppose it's a great song on a really good album yeah surrounded by some other really good songs too it would probably be prog rock but it's alternative but it's a very something it is a song that is both soft and intense um and i i honestly go days and months and years completely forgetting about jars of clay except that I recently started listening to a podcast <laughs> called Oh No, Ross and Carrie, 
which is a really good show, which I highly recommend, which is all about investigative journalism, specifically of alternative medicine, fringe spirituality, religious cults, things like that. The two hosts are both former evangelical Christians, and even though they have left the vast majority of Christianity and pop culture behind them... The one thing they can't give up... ...is Stephen Mason of Jars of Clay. Speaking of Christian music, can we give a shout-out to one of my favorite Let's of our do listeners? It. I know what you're going to say. Stephen Mason of Jars of Clay listens to our show, and we're such Jars of Clay fan kids. How cool it's is that? one of the coolest things. You have no idea, Stephen, how much we geek out over that. Yeah, he tweets at me a lot. Hey, anyway, when I was a teenager, his picture was on my ceiling. That's awesome. I still, uh, any album they release, I buy it right away. Yeah, 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 yeah. I have sure, all of them take too. my money. And we listen to their songs in your car sometimes when we're <laughs> yeah. on long drives. Like, what should we listen to? I we know. Listen to Jars of Jars Clay. Of Clay. Okay, that's the end of that. You can take Ross and Carrie out of church. But you can't. Make them stop listening to Jars of Clay. In fact, they did a whole episode with Stephen Mason, which I would like to specifically yep. recommend which is all about spirit smudging. And it's just like a really fun, cute little episode that they did where they went to his house and were like, hey, we're not implying anything about the spiritual forces of your house, but would you care if we hired some random white woman to burn some sage in your house? And he said, I mean, I'm never going to turn down a blessing. And then the whole audience kind of goes like, aww. And they go, He's a really nice Christian, guys. <laughs> These are very, very cool Christians. And Jars of Clay made some yeah. really great music. Now, of course, Flood was was the big hit. And there are, of course, two versions of it. There's the rock radio version and the adult contemporary version. So you could be surprised one way or the other at the instrumental break when you're expecting the strings and the violin and the cello and you get the electric guitar or vice versa depending on the <laughs> depending on which ones got to? sent to the which radio stations i don't remember it cranking up at this point or i don't remember it's kind of mellowing out at this point because the instrumental break is different in those two in those two versions of it just a little, little factoid there for you shortly after we moved here to uh, columbus our church hosted a jars of clay concert do you remember going to that I do that? not. I, I was eight. Yeah, I'm, you did go. That's the. I'm, I'm sure I'm I probably did. Sure, I'm sure you did. So yeah, you would have been me. Yeah, me eight, nine. When yeah, yeah, you're right. That was a that was a good show. I'm sure it was. <laughs> I remember it about as well as the one Mad Pink show. Well, yes. <laughs> so I think we. I, I think that was pretty positive. I'm smiling. I am too. There was a little bit of shade throwing, but not much. I really want to go reread Million-Dollar Mystery. I didn't actually finish my last reread. So, so I remember need, you were you were working your way through. I think I got through the audio. I think you, I finished audiobooks. Do, no, that's the thing. Because we listen to them as audiobooks. We listen to them as cassettes. Okay, we're old. So they are long gone. Yep. Fortunately, if you have access to Hoopla. Through your library's Mm -hmm. app, which, if you don't have a library card, please locate your local library, go get a library card, download Hoopla, and then search for the Million Dollar Mysteries. They have them all as ebook. Perfect. 
Perfect. I think I, think I never finished quarter. Ah, I think I got to the end. Of, last one. Oh, because I think at the end of dime is when they discover. Big spoiler. See, so not only have we potentially spurred listeners, we spurred ourselves on to revisit some things from our distant, reckless pasts. You know, I might not buy the Seven Seekers. I'm gonna buy the Daystars, though. They're a buck ninety-nine each. Come on. I can drop like twenty-three bucks and get all of them. You should. I should. And if you find that missing a third part of the End Times trilogy from 20-some years ago, I'll, I will pay him to write it. I will pay him to send me his notes. He's Gilbert too, Morris. He's too old for Patreon, though. Like, know, you can't just I be know. like, I, I will pay you $50. The write the book. <laughs> well, if anyone has any thoughts, uh, responses... Uh, reflections, comments, memories of your own of what we've uh, what we've talked about uh, this episode. We, as always, would love to hear from you. We are gathering up feedback, and the next episode may well be feedback. It may well be a couple a episodes of Harry Who Done It. Who Done It audio drama? Who knows what it's going to be? Depends how long it takes to clean up that audio. But, <laughs> but yes, of course. We would love to hear from you. We thank you so much for listening. We know that this show occupies a very small segment of a very small segment, and I think we even shrunk it more today. Yes, victory! This is narrow casting at its finest. So we value each and every one of you. All are welcome. And until next time, may the Force be with you. And also with you. While you're waiting for the next podcast episode, check out our websites. DarknessToLight.blogspot.com contains reviews, essays, and other similar ramblings. And DarknessToLight.tumblr.com, which contains some of that material, as well as top tens, cool photographs, memes, and religious puns. We also run a general interest comic book podcast network, Relatively Geeky. That content can be found at relativelygeekypodcast.blogspot.com or by searching iTunes for Relatively Geeky. Let us know what you think of this topic, this episode, or this podcast in general. Feel free to send your thoughts to us at dorknesstolight at gmail.com. We would also appreciate any ratings or reviews left for the podcast in the iTunes store to help like-minded people find us. Our intro, outro, and promo music is by Anderson Kale. Search iTunes to purchase their music. Thanks for listening. <laughs>